0: Again, if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 10, um, this is, you know, I love preaching through the books of the Bible, but what is the benefit of preaching through the books of the Bible is there's certain topics that probably as a pastor or just a person, like doesn't even have to be a pastor, it's like, oh, it's easy to preach on these things, a lot harder to preach on other things. And so like last week it's a really difficult passage talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, I believe that's not online. We had an issue with our live stream, so hopefully, I think we can. We're gonna have to manipulate a little bit of the, the that from last week, and maybe that'll get up this week. So feel free to check that out, or um, as well. But um, we're dealing with the teachings of Jesus uh, through this section, and a, a really this big section, starting kind of in cha- towards the end of chapter eight, all the way through chapter ten are these kind of harder sayings of Jesus. Uh, Mark has been brief, and he's quick, and so if you want harder teaching, feel free to read Matthew. Matthew's going to be even more detailed on some of the teachings of Jesus. But in our passage this morning, what we see, and what I've titled this message as, is trying to put these these three really vignettes, these kind of stories together, is looking at the demands of following Jesus. The demands of following Jesus. And what we see kind of under our first kind of main heading, mer- verse main point is this, is one, is you must receive the kingdom of God like a child. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to read with me. You don't have to read out loud, but Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13. And what we'll see is Jesus' teaching about little children. Verse 13, and he says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked him. Now, how many times do we see this over and over again? The disciples kind of getting actually in the way. They feel like they're doing the right thing by, like, guarding. You know, like, you, you ever seen celebrities and how they have their kind of posse? They have their, their bodyguards kind of surrounding them, protecting them. Like, don't get near. They're there ready uh, to protect. I was watching recently. I think I showed someone so messy last night. So I'm sure you've heard. Okay, you know, I'll use some, some sports, illustra- uh, sports um, illustrations and things like that. But... With, with sports. I think most of us know, know who Lionel Messi is. If you don't, uh, feel free to Google that. But he's like one of the world, probably the most famous soccer player of all time. I mean, I'm sure there's debates like we talked about with goats and all those kind of things, you know, the greatest of all time, who is it, and all this stuff. But Messi last night played in Charlotte, so that's my hometown, if you didn't know already, um, and so and so for he's playing now towards the end of his career. He moves over to the, <laughs> the major league soccer. You know, it's kind of down the tier of major league sports, and um, but he played last night, and they lost. One to nothing to my home team, Charlotte FC. They barely sneaked into the playoffs. Like, Finally, a sports team made it to the playoffs from Charlotte. It's been a minute for me. I'm not going to lie. We're still waiting on the Panthers to win one game this year. Maybe it'll happen at some point uh, for me, but don't hold your breath. Um, But I was watching a video, and here's Messi playing on the field. And I was watching, there was this video of him just just running around the field. But you could see, actually, because I'd seen another video, of his bodyguard just walking down the sidelines wherever he is on the field. In the middle of a game, he has his own personal bodyguard there to protect him. It's pretty remarkable. In the middle of a game, even his bodyguard's walking down the sidelines, ready to jump. And there was a time where a kid came running on the field. Here comes the bodyguard ready to stop this guy. I mean, he's ready. Like picture that. This is the disciples. Here's people bringing their children to Jesus and the disciples are like, "Whoa whoa whoa, what are you doing?" Like they're like little guardians protecting Jesus from these children. And I think what we have to understand about this is we don't get this. I think I said this a few weeks ago is in the, in the Jewish culture of the day, and really not just the Jewish culture, the culture of the day, Roman culture especially, even more so than probably Jewish culture, was children were more of kind of like a nuisance. They're, they're kind of in the way. They're, they have no status, no rights. Many children, sadly, were discarded. They were left to themselves. Uh, If you had a son, that was a little bit more special, but it's not like you would really treat him, oh nice, like the kids rule the house like it is so much in our culture today in America. It's like the kids are taking you everywhere, like they have sports practice here and sports practice there, they have this club and this club, and they kind of rule your life, that was not the case in this culture. Very much they were minimized until like, maybe that son was going to carry on the name of your family or he would benefit to the work at home in the fields and those kind of things. Children were not viewed as in, high, at a, high way, in a, high, a high view in that culture. They were very much discarded. And so naturally, as Jesus, they're, like, they're thinking, their thoughts are, this is a waste of Jesus' time. Jesus has a lot busier things to do. He has more important things to do than to deal with children. So they... Our rebuke, I mean, that's a strong word. That same word for rebuke is what's used when Jesus is talking about rebuking demon possession. He's rebuking a demon and saying, stop, get out of him. I mean, they're they're, they're very much strongly against. Like, no, 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 these children don't need to be messing with Jesus. Jesus has more important things to do, but not with Jesus. Children had no status until they came of age, but not so with Jesus. Jesus, in verse 14, he became indignant, it says, this is angry, upset, not just to upset internally, but inter- outwardly and to express, no, 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 disciples, you're wrong in this area. You're preventing these children from coming to me. And look what he says. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Let them, here are the words of Jesus, let the children, children who had no status, Children who were viewed as not helpful at all in the home actually cost more. They were were almost seen as a, a problem until they became of age. Jesus looks on children and he says, Don't let them, don't keep them away from me. Let them come to me. He loves children. I want you to see this about Jesus. We know this about God in the Old Testament. There's a, a phrase that you see, and you see it throughout the Old Testament in the different even laws that were instituted to protect the widow, the orphan, to the outsider, to the person who's wayward, the homeless. God's heart was for... There's this phrase I love in the Old Testament. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of the weak. He cares for the lowly. He cares for the outcast. He cares for the loved ones. Listen, this first and foremost should be something that is a mark of our lives and our church is that we care for the marginalized. We care for the outcast. We advocate for the orphan. We advocate for the hurting. We don't prevent them and say, No, like you need to clean yourself up before you come here. No, no, no. We want to be like Jesus here. We want to look at our world and see the brokenness and, and go meet needs, not avoid them. Jesus invites them, and He says about these children, He says, let the children come to Me, do not hinder them. And notice He says these two phrases. I want you to see this here. I think this is important. He makes two important statements about children here. First, He says this, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He says about children, about this type of person, a child. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he says, secondly, what he says also here, he says this, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So two things he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, and whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I want, I want to just pause here just for a second when we're talking about this first main point. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child. Well, first of all, it's like, well, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? What does that phrase, like a child, mean? What is that impregnated with? What does that actually mean? You can see some have thought that children, one view is that their children are innocent, I'm surprised you didn't laugh at that because you're like, wait, I have children and my children are not innocent. Oftentimes they're guilty, you know, like if you have a little toddler, you know, quickly bedtime and morning, you're trying to wake them up early, you know, like, man, they are not innocent. (laughs) You know, it comes around food and all those kind of things. They want more. They're begging. They're crying. They're losing their mind over something, right? They're not so innocent. But some have thought like, oh, the innocence of a little child. Because that is a phrase we use, like the innocence, like they're not, they haven't been hardened by the things of this world, like the innocence of a child. The reality is they're not innocent. Je- no, Jesus is saying we come to Jesus like children. And what he means by that, I want to give you three things I think that this kind of describes for us is they come to him helpless. They come to him helpless. Children are helpless. Remember in this culture, they were very much needy. They, they're not, they don't have rights. They're helpless. They come to Him needy. They, listen, if you ha- I mean, we're talking about little children. Little children need their mom. They need their father. They need someone to feed them, get them food, help them, bathe them, clean them, wash them. They need their essentials met. They're very needy. They're helpless and they're needy. I mean, you think of an infant and all of its needs. It can't do things independently of itself. It needs the loving care of a mother. It needs the loving care of a father. It needs a home, and it needs people who will provide and meet its needs. They're needy. And then also, as children, we think of this too. They they come dependent. I mean, all these are kind of interchangeable a little bit, but helpless and needy and dependent. They need help. When Jesus is saying, Listen, let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. And also, going on to say, uh, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. He's saying, for someone to enter the kingdom of God, they need to come helpless. So, what do you bring to get into eternal life? What gives you eternal life? What brings salvation? What do you come with? Do you come with your gifts and hope that your sacrifices will get you? forgiveness by God. If you come and you bring your, your, um, your best and all these things, and you come and you bring all these things to God, what do you bring? No, no. What you bring and what you need to bring to Jesus is actual need. I come helpless. I come broken. I come needy. I'm poor, spiritually poor. I am in need of you. You come like a child, completely dependent, needy, helpless, And now we move to a story of a man who is the complete opposite of a child. This rich, young ruler. You might be saying, well, where do we get the name rich, young ruler? It might be if you have an ESV Bible, which I do in front of me as a translation. It's titled Rich Young Young Man. And in the story, all it tells us is a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him a question. Well, from, Matthew, from Luke 18:18, 18, 18, uh, Luke calls him in the same story, calls him a ruler. In Matthew 19 uh, verse 22, he calls him a young, he calls him young. And so naturally we get this phrase, "This rich young ruler who comes to Jesus." Think of this, he's rich, he's young, and obviously he has status and he has authority to rule over people and to have such, a, um, such status. And here's this rich, young ruler, complete opposite of what we're just seeing as a child. And here's the call. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child. But then what we see next is someone who is very much self-reliant. And it tells us, as we look at the story, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this man has a lot going for him. He is rich. He's young. Maybe he's in his late 20s. Maybe he's early 30s. He's young. He's rich. And here he is. He has authority. But what do we find about this? This man has a lot going for him, but he also is getting a lot right. Notice what he does. He runs, that's very uncommon in that culture, for a man to just go running after something. You know, it's kind of seen as uncouth. And here he's running up to Jesus. And what does he do? He only, not only just runs up to Him, he kneels before Jesus. I mean, two things we would say, I man, that's pretty incredible. incredible. Here's a man, he's running up to Jesus. He's kneeling before Jesus. He's getting a lot right. And here he's asking the most important question. How can I inherit eternal life? What must I do? Specifically, is what he asks. One commentator remarked on this question. He says, No one who heard Jesus teach in Galilee asked a a question of such magnitude. Nor indeed have Jesus' own disciples. At last, Jesus is asked the essential question, capable of divulging the meaning of his ministry. Hear this man. Of all the stories we've read so far in the book of Mark, here's someone that the disciples haven't even asked Jesus yet this question. No one else that we know of has asked Jesus this question. Here this man comes before Jesus. He runs, he kneels, and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. How will Jesus respond? And Jesus in verse 18 said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, let me give a little bit of explanation there. I think a little bit of explanation is needed to why he would say this and also what that actually even means. Uh, Judaism, only God, in their view, in their culture, only God by nature was good. In avoidance of blasphemy against God, rabbis of the day would rarely ever, they would not really allow themselves to be ever referred and addressed in that way, good teacher, good rabbi. Like, no, you could say like, oh, magnificent or whatever. They might use some other word, but they wouldn't use good because they, they understood good to be only God, like no one's good except God. And here he calls him good teacher, and Jesus is asking. He's, he's, he's really what we see here is he's a skilled lawyer, and he's asking all the leading questions, getting to the heart of the issue by his questions. And this man says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's saying, well, if you're calling me good, you're claiming something about myself, that I am God. And notice what he does. He just quickly moves to verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He's saying, you know the commands of Scripture because, again, in this culture, you ask any Jew, what must I, you ask that question, they're going to say, keep the commands of God. Like, com- keep the law perfectly and fully. Do your best to keep the law. That's going to that's bring you eternal life. That's going to give you life everlasting. So keep the law. Follow the law perfectly. And so, naturally, Jesus asking that question, saying, okay, here's a rich young ruler He knows this man's heart. He knows what he's done. He already knows his life because he's God. And he asks him this question. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So he just kind of quotes to him the second half of the Ten Commandments. And then in verse 20, he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, you might be like, (laughs) whatever. Liar. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, "Come on, seriously, you've never lied, you've never stolen ever one thing." Like you didn't, you know, like there was mom had a little extra cookie out. I know she didn't say anything, but you like saw it, and you're like, "All right, no one's looking. This surely this was left for me." And you did. No, He doesn't call him out on any of these commands. This man is saying, he's saying what Paul actually said about himself. If you remember this, Paul said about himself as to the law, blameless. Paul referred to himself that way, that from about 13, you know, 12, 13, from coming of age, he had kept the law as best as fully as possible. And, he, and Paul even described himself as doing it in a blameless way. This rich young ruler is saying, I have done all those things. Now, if you're if you're like, you know, your, your kids are getting a little older, you got some daughters, like, this is the person you want your children to marry. You're like, this man is rich, he's young, he's probably handsome, because that's what rich young people are, it seems like, you know, and then, and, then here, and then here he is, he's moral. He's like, he's got a high character. Like, listen, please, like, there should be people lining up, like, will you marry my daughter? Will you marry my daughter? Will you marry my daughter? Like, this is like the dream guy. He's saying, I, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And I want you to hear this phrase by Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful phrases that you can hear God say. He says, and Jesus, looking at this rich young ruler, this man who seems to have it all, he loved him. What a phrase that Mark puts in here. Jesus looks at this rich young ruler and he loved him. But here's the question: if someone really loves you, do they tell you what you want to hear or do they tell you what you need to hear? You see, Jesus is about to tell him what he needs to hear, not what he's going to want to hear. But if you have a, a loving father, mother, spouse, friend, co-worker, who genuinely loves you, they're going to tell the truth about you or about something. They're not just going to be like, man, you are great. And they're not just going to pat you on the back. Man, that's great of you that you have kept the law since you were a child. That's wonderful. I mean, like kudos to you. Like that's what our culture in the South would do, like boy," right? Like good job. But Jesus looks at him and he loves him. And here's what he says. You might have already looked at it ahead. He says, you lack, how tragic right here, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Jesus, skilled lawyer, as a skilled lawyer, he's not an actual lawyer, but as a skilled lawyer, he is digging deeper with his questions and leading him to a conclusion, And here, Jesus says, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. One thing, Jesus comes after his heart, he looks at him, he loves him, and he says, Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me. It's one thing. But remember, back to our first point, I think it's still on the screen. You must receive the kingdom of God like a child. And here I want you to see the second one. We must let go of our self-sufficiency to follow Jesus. This is why he is the opposite He has it all. He has riches, he has status, he has morals, he has everything. But here's the problem, a lot of that is stacking up actually against him because who needs God if you have everything? Who needs God to meet your needs when your needs are met? Who needs God if you have it all? And if you're good and you're a pretty good person, why would you ever need God? You see, this is the problem. This is the problem for us. This is the problem for me. This is the problem probably for you, is that we like stuff. We like things, and we're very much self-sufficient. Listen, I can, I can prepare a message to you without... Quote, needing God, that, that is blasphemy, basically. I don't mean it that way, and my point is not to mean I can do it without God. The point is I can do it on my own. I can go and say, well, I've got this, God. I, I'll study, I'll prepare, and I'll speak. How foolish of me to ever think that way. How foolish of me to not go to God in prayer and say, God, will you speak and use me today? God, will you enlighten my eyes and my heart? Speak deeply into my heart and speak to me before I ever come and speak to others. But what do we do? We are so easily self-sufficient. I can do it with my own hands. I got hands. I have feet. I've been blessed with With a mind that can work and function and think and process, I can, and so easily, and I have resources. I don't have very many needs that I need. I mean, there's plenty of wants, but there's not many needs that I have. I don't think, I actually can't really think of any where it's like, oh man, I really need, because I can get it. I need milk today. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna go to the grocery store, I'm gonna get some more milk, and I'm gonna pay for it with money that I have. Jesus coming after me says, Let me hear this. He's so stinking close, but yet he's so far away. One thing he lacks. One thing sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Renounce all and follow me. Remarkable. So what is Jesus doing when He's asking Him to do this? Does this mean like to follow Jesus, I have to renounce all and give up all my possessions, sell it to the poor, go give it away, give it all away, not when I die, but now, and I'm just going to live off the land and hope to make it. No, this is not what He's teaching, but what He is coming after is idols. You see, He kept, maybe He did, kept the laws of people. He would not lied, maybe He would not stolen. Maybe not defrauded anyone, as the word is used here. That's not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's probably an application of some of the others of bearing false witness. Especially with him being a rich ruler. Maybe defrauding could have been a problem. How did he get his money and his wealth? He didn't murder anyone. I'm blameless. But what he was missing was number one. You shall have no other gods before me. He thought he was blameless when it came to the law, but he was missing the first. No other gods, none other before me. You see, what a statement by Jesus. One thing missing, and it's the most important. One thing is keeping you from following me. And Jesus is coming right after that one thing. He's helping him. He is exposing this man's heart to himself. It's an idol that he didn't know maybe even existed and here's the problem, and so many fall short here. I will follow you, God, and we put this little two-letter word in there, if. I will follow you if, fill in the blank. We want to add Jesus to our lives and say, okay, well, Jesus, yeah, come be a part of my life. I, I, feel free to fill in the gaps, as it were. But Jesus is saying, If you are putting your trust fully in me, you're going to renounce all other things. And the one thing he lacks is Jesus above all else. He is in love with stuff, with things that won't satisfy. I think this is why this is so fascinating. Why is he coming to Jesus to ask this question? You ever thought about that with this story? Maybe you're a little bit familiar with this story before, heard it, because it is in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and um, in those three synoptic Gospels. Have You ever wondered, why did he come to Jesus to ask this question? He's kept the law perfectly. He has everything he ever could need. Why does he come to Jesus to ask this question? But what must I do? Like, I think, I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm doing everything that a, a Jewish boy and man should be doing. Like, maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm missing something. You see, I think deep in his heart, he knew something was missing. I'm keeping the law, but something's not right. I read a, a quote this week. Not a quote, I read a tweet, because that's what I tend to do, read Twitter. <laughs> and John ja Morant, so you probably don't know who Ja Morant is. If you do, welcome to basketball world. So, it's the NBA. Um, unbelievable superstar. Came on the scene, coming from a Murray State small school, hit it big. I mean, amazing. I mean, jumps out of a gym, all this stuff. Um, amazing talent. He said this week, I mean, he said it this week, earlier this week or the beginning of, uh, the end of last week. Here was his statement that he just wrote to his, all these millions of people who follow him. He said this. He says it's a different story for me. It seems I got everything that I ever dreamed, but I can't find peace. Michael Jordan actually said something very similar. He said the same, very similar. He said, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? You see, because you're not meant to find peace anywhere else. Everyone's on a peace quest. We want a, a full Easy, comfortable life, and we're on a peace quest. And the problem is, here's a man who has John Morant status. I mean, you're talking about, I mean, he's got shoe deals, he's got shoes being made by him, all these things. His name's on gear, his name's on so many fans of his all over the world, all over the world, literally. Here he is, he has everything he has money, he has success, he has everything going for him. But here's a man who looks, and is by his attitude over the past year, and some of the actions he's had, getting in trouble with the law and everything, is he's on a quest for peace, and he can't find it. And I believe that this rich young ruler, he was missing something, because all of us are missing that something. And all of us are in search of it, but we're trying to find it in things. Some people find it in success, and they find it in their work, and they're hoping that it's there, but then when that job loss comes... All of a sudden, your world is literally turned upside down because you are finding your sense of worth in that thing. Maybe it's in a relationship, it's in children, it's in success, it's in all these things. We can put it in all kinds of things. Calvin said it really well. He said that our hearts are like idol factories. They just create more idols. They just create more things that you want, things that you want to, to worship, things that you want to do. And see, the reality is this, is money is meant to be a tool, not a savior. And you and I can so easily become a slave to it. See, Jesus talks a lot about money because he knows its power. He loves, this man loves the security, the safety of his wealth. He loves his things. And so after one of the most beautiful expressions, Jesus looked and loved him. We get one of the most tragic statements. Listen to what his response is in verse 22. Disheartened grieved by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. Jesus came after the idol, and the rich young ruler said, I can't do that. He can. He's not willing to let go. He wants Jesus and he wants Jesus and his stuff. I will follow you, but not if you take away that. Why? Because that was his security. He was, God was saying, I need all of you. You need my full. I need your full trust. You need to trust me completely to provide for your every need. Who knows what would have happened if this man would have sold his possessions and given to the poor. Most likely, God would have blessed him immensely. Because we see, we see that throughout the Bible as well. Not always. Now, you have to understand, in this culture, the view of a rich person wasn't looked down on. It was actually looked, like, even morally. They looked up like, oh, man, God must be blessing that person because he has wealth. The disciples were probably amazed by this man. And they're like, and then they're probably going, like, what is Jesus saying? This man, they weren't like, man, yeah, tell him to sell us, but we've given up everything. We're going to see that in a second. But no, the, the view would have been pretty high. But here's the point. Jesus is coming after idols. He's coming after the things that you worship more than God. You see, there's God. It's not like one and one A. It's like there's, there's worship of God and then there's everything else. There's not like I can worship God and this or I love these things and I'm going to just add Jesus to my life. No, it's Jesus above all else. I want to ask you, how about you? Is money your idol? Is your, is your looks? Is a child? Is a spouse? Is work? There was a 2005, it's a pretty famous, commencement address by David Foster Wallace. I'm uh, pretty confident he was an atheist, but he had a lot to say about worship. In this really famous commencement address from 2005, the year I graduated um, college. He said this in his speech. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ, or Allah, be it Yahweh, or the wicked Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship, notice this, will eat you alive. If you worship money, here's what he says at this commencement address to these college students about to begin their careers and to pursue all their aspirations. If you worship money... And things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth, he says. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally put you in the grave. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Notice this. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, he says. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. That's why I think Calvin did get it right when he said our hearts are idol factories. And here's the problem is you put those idols and you make those good things. Things that are good, but you make them God things, they will fail you and you'll be a slave to it. And here's what his point is saying is you'll, it'll actually destroy you. It'll, it'll, it'll ruin you because you'll, you'll want it, but you'll eventually lose it or it won't be there. I mean, I can tell you, I feel like over the past five years hearing story after story of people who had it all and they end their life with no one around them and nothing and they feel empty. Why? Because they're not meant to find it in this world. They're meant to find it it outside of themselves and outside of this world. Here's the point. We, as as stories kind of come together, let the children come to me, we need to come like a child. We come helpless, we come broken, we come needy. Here's a man who's coming not needy And he doesn't get it. And so naturally, Jesus responds. And I want you to see this. And Jesus, verse 23, we'll move quickly here. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Let let this sink in. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the disciples' thoughts? How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Because remember, this is going against the grain. They're thinking wealth was God's blessing. God's blessed these people with wealth. Like, God's favor is on these people. That's why they have money. That's why they have resources. That's why they have things. And so the disciples were amazed, it says in verse 24, by his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I got to see a camel this past week. It's pretty big. I did not see a needle, but I've seen a needle before. (laughs) They're very small because I have a hard time getting thread through them. I'm usually like, Amanda, please, why would I ever have a needle? First of all, I'm just watching her do it anyways. Yeah you need my help, good, I'm glad you didn't need it with that. I mean, it's impossible. You know, we've, people have tried to come up with reasons to, like, explain away that, like, oh, well, there's, you know, like, with the the house, and there's, there's a phrase that was used, or we try to take this word. No, the point is really meaning it is impossible. His point is it's impossible. Because that's why in verse 26, the disciples say they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Like, like, if the rich person who's blessed by God can't be saved, it's impossible. How is it possible for anyone to be saved? Hear the last point that's on the screen. We must, listen, we must rest solely on the grace of God. You see, you cannot save yourself. The question that the rich young ruler asked was, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus is saying, it's impossible for you to be saved. You can't do it enough. And if we looked at him, we would say, if he can't do it, I can't do it. I know I've not kept the law perfectly. I know I've lied. I know I've done things. I know I've said things that I should have said. I've been angry and harsh, and I've sinned, and I have not kept the law perfectly. Here's a man who's saying he is, but yet he's still lacking one thing, and he leaves disheartened and sad. So you're saying, yes, it is impossible, and you're like, I see it, and you're like the disciples going like, well, who can be saved? Jesus. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Hear that. Salvation comes not through your works, your effort. It comes by grace, through faith in Christ alone. It is impossible. We can never measure up. We can never do enough good. We can never atone, like beat ourselves up over our past mistakes and failures. We need grace. We need radical, transforming grace to invade us in our hearts. And here's the invitation to this rich young man, and he leaves disheartened and grieved because he had much and he was not willing to part with it. Tragic. So Jesus, responding to G- Peter's question, Peter going to speak up for the group this time again, Peter began to say to him, see, he's like, well, Jesus, we've given up everything. Like, this man's not willing, but we've done it. Like, hey, I'm over here. I've, we've left our families. We've left our livelihood. We left our dad in the boat, and we followed you. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't get on to Peter again like, Peter, stop focusing on yourself. (laughs) He says, Jesus said, truly I say to you. Listen to the reward here. You're like, this sounds too hard. I can't give up. This thing has too much hold on my life. I can't. I'm unwilling to do it. Listen to the cost, the demands to follow Jesus. Let this be a warning to us Americans, as people who live among wealth and have much you might be like, well, I don't have much. Well, compared to the rest of the world, you have a lot. You have a whole lot. So I think this is a strong warning because because money provi- provides security. And oftentimes that is why it becomes an idol. Money in itself is meant to be a tool, but time we make it a savior, thinking that it will give us protection and satisfaction and hope and all this thing. We put our hope in these things and we want these things and our heart wants these things. Jesus comes after that idol, and the disciples are like, how can anyone be saved if it's, impo- it's really difficult? <laughs> it's even impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're like, well, look, we've left everything. They're wanting to focus on what they've done again. But notice what Jesus does say. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Notice this. Now, in this time, not just future blessing, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice that. Just kind of sneaked it in there, right? With persecutions. But notice what he says. And brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, even with persecutions. And in the age to come, now let me remind you Mark was writing during the time, he's writing to a Roman audience, people who were in Rome, these Christians who are following Jesus, trying to follow Jesus, but amidst Nero's awful, awful, awful persecution of Christians. Cross, I mean, there's a, one um, uh, historian of the day. Don't think it was Josephus, another. Normally we quote Josephus with historians, but but another um, who, who mentioned how, listen, literally Rome's roads were just lined with crosses. And it was described as there was like no more wood in Rome. Because of the amount of persecution and crucifixions, they were crucifying, just lining them up along the roads, Christians. Here he's writing to them and saying, listen, I know it's hard, and I, God, God is calling you to give up all things, and you have, and you're doing that, and you're looking around, and you're like, I'm just experiencing pain and suffering and all of this. And, and Peter and them are thinking, like, we've left everything for you, we're doing that. This is really hard, it's, it seems impossible, and he's reminding him of the reward. He's saying, God will bless you, not just in a future hope, in eternity. Yes, that's the most important. But he's saying, even now. But here's the question, what does that mean? For the missionary who does give up everything and struggles immensely, or for the follower of Jesus who says, I renounce all and I will follow you no matter what, and you had to lose the love of a father and a mother, one of my good friends, a pastor, his name is Sabu Rajapan, and he, he's a pastor in, at Calvary Church where, I, where I, we moved and, and planted from here to here. I remember him telling the story because he grew up Hindu and his parents um, loved him, and, and he was this kind of like poster child in their home, as I, as I recall. And, and, and he was a devout Hindu himself, and his brother, though, had already, was, had already moved away and had become a Christian. And his parents wanted him to go and Convince his brother to renounce being a follower of Jesus and come back to Hinduism. And so his brother goes and he tries to, sh- he tries to call him and tell him to come back and all these things. And what ends up happening is his brother leads his, his own brother to the Lord. And he renounces Hinduism and follows Christ. And you know what happened? His parents renounced him. I know another person who actually died of cancer several years ago who was a devout Muslim became a follower of Jesus. He was ready to like, he was like, all right, when he got to college, he was ready to convert Christians to to Muslim or to China. And he noticed someone reading his Bible and he's like, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to go convince this guy. And he went up to him and they struck, a became friends. And actually, David, his friend, led him to the Lord. And his parents were completely devastated. In this Muslim context, I mean, this is shame. And this is like, you have abandoned us and our family. And here's these people who are sometimes willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. And yet, in our comfort of our living rooms, in our southern culture, there's not much that we have to give up. And so that's where you're like, God, will you expose my heart? Show me the idols. Reveal to me if I'm genuinely a follower of you or not. And here to explain this last week i felt like i gave a little dig to john piper so i didn't want to do that this week so i'm going to give him i'm going to give him a, help him, let him explain this really well he said this this text does not mean that you get materially rich by becoming a missionary at least not in the sense that your own private possessions increase it means mainly that if you are deprived of your earthly family in the service of christ it will be made up a hundredfold in your spiritual family The church. But even this may be too limiting. What about the lonely missionaries who labor for years without being surrounded by hundreds of sisters and brothers and mothers and children in the faith? Is the promise not true for them? Surely it is. Surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. Let me repeat that. Surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm camaraderie of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Isn't what Jesus is saying to prospective missionaries just this? I promise to work for you and be for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. And he goes on to say that's exactly what Hudson Taylor took from this passage. Because at the end of his 50 years of missionary labor in China, he said, "Hear this: I never made a sacrifice." From our perspective, we may see it that way, and maybe it feels that way. It is can't imagine the difficulties of saying, "I'm going to follow you and I'm in a Muslim home in the Middle East, and I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to renounce all." And like that might mean death tomorrow. It might be I'm hanged later. Maybe it means I lose everything. I can't get a job, but you are worth it, Jesus. Hear the example. See, Jesus isn't saying, rich young ruler, man, like you've got to do this. No, Jesus is the example of the rich. He's the actual real rich young ruler. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet, for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, Jesus was rich, way more rich than this man. He gave it all up, set it aside, stepped into poverty for our sake, and now he calls us to give up whatever it takes to follow him. The question for us this morning is, Will we be like a child? I come poor and needy. I come extremely needy. I'm coming with my need. I'm not coming with my self reliance. I'm not coming with, I'm not that bad of a person. That is usually our problem. We think we're better than we actually are. Or will we be like this rich young ruler and we hear this demand to follow Christ? will we, like verse 22 says, will we disheartedly, disheartened by this saying, go away sorrowful because we're not willing to part with what has a hold of us. Will we repent of our sin and put our trust solely in Christ and say, God, you get my life, you get my all, my everything. We sing words like that, but we don't mean them oftentimes. There's a lot of lyrics to the songs that we sing that say phrases like that. It was more heightened to it this morning as I was thinking about this passage and hearing the phrases that we say. Put your trust in Christ. It'll be worth it. Christ will fill all of those holes with his absolute perfect love for you. Maybe something has a hold of your heart and you know it. You know, there's something that, like, if that was taken away, I just I couldn't live anymore, despondent. If I lost this job or this person died in my life, this loved one, or if God took away this skill that I have and I just lost it, I couldn't live. Listen, that most likely means it's an idol and it has become God to you and you worship it. Jesus is saying, you can't follow me and that. You need to give it up. I have to, God, search my heart. I have to ask that often. God, search my heart. Purify my heart, purify my motives. So easy to be prideful, especially among wealth and having things. I have a home, I have cars, I have all my needs met. It's easy to get self-reliant. So God, search my heart. Show me like you did this rich young ruler the one thing that I'm missing. Reveal it and repent and say, God, I, I, I will give it to you. Listen, one easy way to know that especially money is a hold of you is your willingness to part with it. Is it easy to give not meaning, oh man, it hurts. I, I get, for, like, for some it hurts. But oftentimes that's lack of responsibility typically, but not always. But the point is this, does money have a hold of your heart? Because you're like, you know what, I, I mean, I hear you, God, you're saying this thing, but it has a hold of your heart. Are you willing to easily part with it? Like, or is it like, you know, oh, man, like the frustration. Like, okay, I, I feel guilty. No, God says he loves a cheerful giver. Generosity should be a mark of every follower of Jesus. Next week, um, we're going to have um, the chapels, Wes and Penny Chapel, uh, share uh, next week about their, their work overseas. They're, they're ones who gave up American lifestyle, moved their family several, uh, maybe even a couple decades ago, uh, overseas. Some of you got to meet Maddie and get to know Maddie. Maddie married uh, into their family just recently this past spring, summer. Um, and uh, they're going to be here next week to share. They're, they're on furlough. What that means is they're home for this year. They're, they're going and speaking at some of the churches that support them and other things, but they are missionaries in, um, in, in the Pacific area, and, um, and they'll be here to share next week, and I, I, would, I would encourage you to come, get to meet them, get to know them. Wonderful, wonderful family who are doing some amazing things. Right now, he's just doing a lot of translation work, um, this church is established like, by the grace of God. Uh, and, and sadly, and he'll talk about it next week, one of, the, the first, one of their first followers of Jesus in that tribe, the people group that had never been reached before with the gospel, never heard the gospel in their language ever, um, passed away this past year. And um, it's been heavy and hard on them and their church there as well. So you can be praying for them. It's Weston Penny Chapel, but they'll be here next week to share. And we'll get to hear someone that's kind of living this picture that we're seeing. Um, in this passage. I hope you'll come next week for that as well, but not to shift us away from our thoughts and our our response this morning. But I want to just give time, just like to bow your heads and just close your eyes for a second, and ask God as I pray here in just a, a moment, God, search my heart. Like David prayed, search my heart and know me. If there's any wayward way in me, Ask God, like is, maybe there's an idol. You know it. You know what that thing is. You just want more of it. You can't let it go. Listen, you can't be God's follower and have that. That is sure mark of a person who's not genuinely following Jesus. And most likely, when Jesus says, looks at the end, and you hear this in Matthew, "Depart from me, you workers of vinegar. I never knew you." And you're like, "What? I knew you. I did this, this, and this in my name." Jesus looks at him and says, "Depart from me. You don't. I don't know you." Listen, you can't. Be his disciple and worship other things. So renounce them. Don't be like this rich young ruler. Renounce it and follow him. Let me pray, Father. This is so heavy. This is very painful. It's abrupt, it's piercing. You know my heart, God, you know that I sometimes do question the genuineness of my own faith. Do I really treasure you above all? God, help us, help us to surrender. All of our plans, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, may they come under the supremacy of Christ. You gave up it all. You became poor so that we could be made rich through the grace of God. I thank you for that grace that what is impossible for us is made possible because of God, because nothing is impossible with you. So I thank you for that hope, the hope of your grace we desperately need more of it. So as we come, as we respond this morning in our hearts and in our prayer, Father, would you shake us? Help us to renounce all and follow you. Help us to learn the lesson that this rich young ruler wasn't able to do. Help us to surrender it all to the one who deserves it all, Jesus our Lord help us in all these ways, and Father, forgive us of our many sins. Our... Oh, how desperate we are for you because we're broken and feeble. So we thank you for your grace. We need more of it. We beg you for more of it. In Jesus' name, amen.